This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Well, I've been where you're hanging. I think I can see how you're pinned. We all know the car of civilization is heading into climate meltdown. In a rare radio interview, Dr. Jim Bendel explains deep adaptation and the psychology of the awful truth. Do you accept world wrecking as an economic game? Keep listening for Skeena Rathor, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. Then a quick look at what Elon Musk is really saying. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. Picture a world-known specialist in sustainability presenting at major conferences. At the University of Cumbria, UK, he founds an institute teaching leaders. He advises some of the world's largest environment groups, businesses, and political parties. Then it hits him. The bottom line of climate science is, practically nothing we do is sustainable. The system is accelerating into a crash. Now what? Professor Jem Bendel emerged with a strategy, a new worldview called Deep Adaptation. But the mainstream media still communicates the dream of endless consumption on a small planet. Why is talk about collapse hidden? Why are some scientists and psychologists still warning us not to talk about the awful truth? From Indonesia, Jem Bendel, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Pleased to be here. So all the players did their bit at COP26 in Glasgow, the big climate conference. But I wonder, Jim, were they working to prop up a delusion? Well, thank you for that um, important and accurately leading question. (laughs) I mean, the real question for me is, with all this discussion that's happening about, was it a failure? Was it a success? There's a lot of posturing going on. And for me, it's quite simple. Will the commitments made at the Glasgow Climate Summit, and I'm talking about the multilateral agreements involving government, but also will the the side agreements altogether, will they avert a climate catastrophe? Will they avert a situation where hundreds of millions of people are dying in the coming years because of environmental change? No, they won't. So if that's your focus, then yes, COP26 was a failure. And yes, it is not unusual. The whole way that COP and the whole international climate policy agenda has been designed has been away from the questions of economic governance. And if you're going to keep people away from the basics of how the banking system works and corporations work, how the economy needs to grow to keep people employed, to keep the money flowing, then you're involved in delusion. Yes. We had over 500, uh, over 500 people from the fossil fuel lobby were there. And meanwhile, you know, indigenous people and activists and people who have worked on this for years just have no voice. Uh, it's not really surprising to me and with the consensus set up that they really can't go anywhere. But where does that leave us? If, if the only large intergovernmental organization we have to work on climate change isn't working, what then? Yeah, you're right to point out the difference in in imbalance in participation. And that's reflective of how commercial interests have shaped the era of climate concern over the last decades. 
back way back in 1997, there was the possibility of a global framework for carbon taxation. And business interests, particularly from the US, stopped that and got everyone talking about cap and trade, which hasn't had a positive impact on the atmosphere, but certainly made a lot of people some money. And it does look like corporate influence is now going to shape this new era of climate emergency. So we're out of the era of just concern about something sometime in the future. No one can deny we're already in this mess. The corporations, uh, not just fossil fuel, but big business in general and financial institutions showed up in force in Glasgow uh, as they try and show that the, the, the responses should be not about curbing growth, not about curbing their freedoms to externalize costs and maximize profits, but should be a, a partnership future where government basically gives more money to the biggest businesses and investors in the world to help them to invest in better things. That's the, the effort underway now. And unfortunately, that is going to not be very helpful for the new era, as I said, of climate emergency, where we now need to look at, well, how do we cope with worsening disruptions? And when I say we, I mean, people everywhere are going to be experiencing greater disruptions directly from climate change, but also from the knock-on effects of how it affects costs of, of food and how it affects psychologically people when they no longer believe that tomorrow is going to be better than today and you should just keep working and saving and looking after your kids and everything seems fine. So that is, that is the opinion surveys show that many people are waking up Huge numbers of people, great proportions of society are waking up to this sense of foreboding about the future. And the key thing to do to answer your question and validate that sense of its anxiety, its confusion, because it's only from that starting point that we can begin to have the conversations about what do we do next, the, the question you've invited me to answer. Well, the first thing to do is admit that we are in this terrible situation that we can't rely on a billionaire to save us or a corporation to save us, and things are going to get a lot worse. The answers are going to be infinite. Like, it's, it's, I have avoided over the last three years saying, this is your answer for what you should be doing or we all should be doing, given the fact societies are going to unravel in many different ways around the world. My main thing is to invite people to be honest about their emotions, stop suppressing them, stop propping up the delusion that somehow capitalism and corporations and entrepreneurs and a few charismatic government leaders will save us. And then find a way of saying it's okay to be committed to creatively and kindly muddling through. You know, it's... You don't have to believe in all these saviour stories. You don't have to believe in progress to also find just a way of getting up in the morning and trying to reduce harm and find ways of muddling through. A lot of people can't, can't deal with that. After that, yeah, I've, I've got my, lots of ideas myself about what should be happening at a policy level. And I've got lots of ideas if I talk to an individual about their own lives, about how they might reprioritise things in their own life. And I can tell people how I've reprioritized things in my own life. You've just written a paper which I see as being aimed at psychologists, really. And in it, you counter the idea, or at least question the idea, that we shouldn't tell the public the truth, uh, that it's too harsh. People will just freeze up and they won't go into action and they may even go into denial. 
What's your counter to that? What are you saying to people who are trying to set that tone of, should we tell the truth? Yeah, just over three years ago now, I, uh, the, the deep adaptation paper on the climate tragedy came out. And that changed my life. You know, authoring that, the massive reaction to it meant that suddenly it was like, oh, I need to learn a lot more about how people are responding to this. So the last three years, I spent quite a lot of time learning about psychology. Um, so I'm a sociologist, but I, I spent a lot of the last three years talking to psychologists and realizing that we have a lot of ideas in our society which are completely baseless in terms of psychological theory. So one of those ideas is we must have hope. And who's we and what does hope mean? Or another idea is... Uh, it's important to avoid despair no matter what. What do we mean by despair and why? And, and actually, if you look at what happens to people in despair, so long as there's some support for them in terms of being able to talk with people and get, have some time away to reconnect with what's most valuable and important for them, then despair can be quite transformative and most people do talk about moments in despair being liminal moments where they changed and they were happy about those changes and what I've noticed is in the last three years since deep adaptation has moved from being just a paper I wrote into a framework a community an international community around the world of people working on this uh, and even a movement is that the people who have allowed the despair to transform themselves into people now who have far more honest with themselves and each other, far more creative, who've dropped their old stories, their old deference to power and hierarchy. And they're living much more in the now, much more vibrantly. And it's different for different people. Some people quit their career. Some people sell their house. They become musicians or make filmmakers or community activists or get to work on transition economics also, or become co-leaders of Extinction Rebellion climate activist groups. You know, people responding amazingly in many, many different ways. So the psychological paper that you, you referenced, yeah, it's in a psychotherapy journal. It's the result of my, my journey over the last three years, looking at what does psychological theory say about the, the nature and place of hope and despair. And also the, there's something I didn't know about before. There's actual theory on it called experiential avoidance so basically how our fears of certain emotions difficult emotions mean that we don't even allow ourselves to notice we're having those emotions so fear sadness grief anger we suppress it and then that comes out in other psychopathological behaviors of all sorts and I think the, the aggression that people like me have received from some people in the environmental movement is because of that. They themselves don't completely understandably, myself too, for years didn't want to allow the pain of a full realization of our predicament, because it also includes the pain of the end of a story of myself, which is, I appreciate myself because I'm a change agent doing good in the world, waking the world up to the environmental crisis so that we can change and reduce harm and 
achieve an ecological civilization. That story kept me going. That story kept me working late into the night. That story meant it felt okay that I was earning much less than everyone else at university who were my friends. That story helped me justify why I wasn't maybe happy in my personal life. And it's the same for many other people who've committed their lives to environmentalism. There's that story of self-worth, which is connected to the idea that we can fix this. We'll do this. So that collapses if you wake up to the predicament. I survive really by having almost two selves, and one of them is online, plugged into world events, really paying attention. Uh, but I can only take so much of that. And then the other life is out in the garden with my hands in the dirt as much as I can and uh, talking to chickens. So this is how the, I've managed to survive. But I'm not sure that some people still have that foot in the earth at all. And so they're almost entirely online. And I worry about the psychological effects of that and, and a, a spreading of, of mass fear in that sense. So it's very difficult to know what to do. So you're right that um, the modern urban way of life, complemented by the modern digital experience of life, means that we can have less access to simple bodily emotional regulation through reconnection with people, reconnection with nature in its simplest forms as well, soil in the garden, chickens, doesn't have to be spectacular landscapes, simple reconnection with being alive and our breath and the wonder of being alive. Yes, it does mean that we are more vulnerable to mass psychosis. There are reasons for panic, but the way that the panic is delivered to us in a online urban existence through news and social media, and the way that the answers to that panic are delivered to us are not in our interests. Whether you agree with them or not, they're in the interests of profit-seeking corporations and the institutions that are wedded to that system. For example, some vaccines are great. Some pharmaceutical companies do some good things in the world. Many people are alive today because of pharmaceutical companies doing what they do. But as organizations, they do not exist in order to help us understand our health and get better. They exist for profit and for share price protection. Um, and so, yeah, the information we'll be getting through them and from institutions and professionals that have uh, are very close to them will be a particular view on the situation. So there may be reason to be very concerned about this pandemic and the next pandemic, particularly in the era of zoonotic disease spillover because of what we've done to our environment. But listening to them as the, about what the answers are, well, listen, sure, but if they're dominating our perception of what, how to respond, then we, we're not really, um, yeah, we're not going to respond as well as we can individually or collectively. For me, just to say, get back to your garden thing. Yeah, for me, I have found uh, walking in nature. Yes, I'm lucky I can walk into the fields here. I've been learning guitar. I've been writing songs. And I go away to a temple for three days offline, well, four days, three nights, uh, every two months. I just completely drop everything to just disappear. And I go to a Buddhist temple in a monastery and I stay there for three nights and four days completely offline, meditate, walking meditation as well, walking in the forest and taking my notepad and pen oh, and singing uh, as well. Tell us about the scholar's warning letter. So, yeah, there's a new letter that just came out on the last day of COP, 
We started writing it when we saw the draft communicate, the draft final, and we gave uh, a network of international scholars just 24 hours to read the letter and sign it. And so over 200 did in that time. And these are people from yeah over 30 countries, uh, many different disciplines, but they all work on environmental issues. So it includes climatologists, psychologists, economists, sociologists, philosophers, and so on. And the letter uh, says that COP26 Glasgow summit is a failure. It does not respond to the, the danger we're in. And it says that the result, that's partly the result of the corporate capture of the whole climate agenda. Uh, and we say that that is a problem. And while the whole climate policy agenda is still captured by corporate interests, commercial interests, ultimately, the way that capitalism has dominated the process, um, we're not we're not going to actually get real with what's needed. And the letter also says we don't see this changing quickly. So we can hope that governments will finally escape that capture and actually respond to the predicament. But we now have to really work harder with more radical leadership and more, more uh, leadership at the community level and through organisations, local governments, all sorts. There's, there's no one coming to save us. The, the, the leaders of the world are not going to fix this for us. And so we're also saying that, therefore, the leaders of corporations are not going to fix it for us. So there's going to be some spin now about, oh, clunky intergovernmental processes can't move quick enough. But, hey, look at businesses moving at the speed of business, which was actually the title of one of the, the, the program from Accenture Consulting at COP26, Speed of Business. So that was the letter. And it follows up a letter from um, a year ago where 600 of us signed a letter that, uh, that said that we really need to start talking about the likelihood or inevitability of greater societal disruption and collapse and start preparing for that, um, have much more honest conversations about that. It's just a simple way for people who work on this stuff full time to speak out in a way that's contrary to what's being promoted through the mass media and by politicians and, and on stage. It's just a small way of saying, no, we don't agree. Our analysis and our work suggests otherwise. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Well, I want to get in a couple of tools that you offer so that listeners can know how to follow up. And one of them is your book, Deep Adaptation, Navigating the Realities of the Climate Chaos. What can people expect to find there? So the book is an edited collection of people who have accepted that we're in a terrible situation and that societal disrupt, disruption and even collapse is coming and coming in the next years or at least within the next 20 years. And therefore, we it means we need to change how we approach our personal and professional lives immediately. And they include people working in education, working in psychology, working in management working in local economics. So it's quite a broad range of contributors. And um, that was intentional because there's no one simple answer to this. I mean, what we're really talking about is the destabilization of everything. So how can you have one book on that or one theory on that? Um, it's clearly, that I suppose the glue or the underlying idea is that we need to be better able to cope with difficult emotions and have difficult conversations and be creative and generative without the the old stories of progress and technology fixing everything. We're going to have very difficult times 
And we have to figure out a way to go through them without fighting and, and killing each other. So we think of World War One, the Depression, World War II. That century was littered with big challenges, horrible times, hundreds of millions of deaths. I think this century could be worse, but perhaps I'm misplacing it uh, out of some personal fear of my own. I, it's hard to, to judge, but it looks pretty bad to me. So, yeah, the deep adaptation ethos is to attempt to respond as kindly and fairly as possible to the breakdown of industrial consumer societies. So, yes, that means try and avoid genocide, try and avoid world war, try and avoid all sorts of authoritarian fear-based responses. Authoritarian fear-based responses involve this delusion that somehow if things are going wrong, then it's because we're all naughty children and we need some strict father to come and discipline us and fix everything for us. And clearly, we've all grown up in societies that have upheld that nonsense. And we're seeing that a lot at the moment in 2021 with the narratives around how to fix the pandemic rather than just a more empowering approach. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency in our culture to, to slide into authoritarian attitudes when we're feeling a bit nervous. So, yeah, deep adaptation is inviting us to notice all that and try and keep trying to be less nasty about other people or groups of people. Keep curious, keep compassionate, keep creative. And uphold the idea that um, it's just as important to do stuff because it's right as to pursue a theory of success. So often we see people say, I'm sorry, justice, human rights, caring for refugees, um, caring for the little person, caring for gender issues, whatever. That's all great. But Jen, we're in a situation of life and death and, you know, we just need to help humanity survive. What we're really saying is, Jem, I'm so scared. My theory of how we're going to succeed is something I'm so attached to, I'm going to be violent to you and other people in pursuit of my theory of success. That's what that story really means, because no one knows the future in terms of what will definitely happen. And so we, we have a lot of people now who, are, who have gone to the extremes of their violent theories. There's something called long-termism which has come out of uh, the effective altruism movement plus the catastrophic risk field funded by billionaires, which is this theory of, well, there's potentially in pure utilitarian terms, uh, quantitative terms, there's potentially so much more happiness to be experienced by future billions of humans at some point in the future or even future billions of sentient beings a bit like humans, perhaps our uploaded brains into computers, that we have to focus on sustaining this civilization above and beyond all else, including, therefore, the rights and well-being of people alive today. Now, this is a serious theory uh, which provides intellectual cover for violence. For me, is about understanding that when people get panicked, particularly if they have stories of their agency and power, and maybe they became very rich, or maybe they're the heads of uh, top university institutes, valuing the theoretical future happiness of theoretical future human-like sentient beings, or, and therefore justifying whatever we need to do. That together is, very, is a very dangerous mix, and uh, we want to invite people to notice that, realize their delusion, realize their experiential avoidance, and come back to love and curiosity and the here and now.
That's a great point, I think, to leave it, Jim. We've been speaking with world sustainability expert now calling for deep adaptation, the UK's Dr. Jim Bendel, and you can find links to follow up at my own show blog at ecoshock.org. I'll point you at all sorts of Jim's work, and it's great stuff. Jim, thank you for showing up on the show. Thank you, Alex. I'm Alex Smith reporting. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Scientists warn climate change, pollution, and grabbing everything for ourselves is driving life into a sixth mass extinction event. But millions of people reject that future. They rebel against extinction. In the little English town of Stroud, a group of activists provided the spark that lit up activism around the world. We reached out to one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, Skeena Rathor. Skeena is a dynamic person with multiple skills to help us heal and perhaps heal the planet. She works with trauma and growing our minds. She raises protests, but she raises media awareness and without anger. Instead, Skeena helps Extinction Rebellion with a vision that includes everyone that comes from the heart. From the UK, Skeena Rathor, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Thank you, Alex. Real pleasure and privilege to be speaking with you. When the pandemic first came, you accepted the need for a pause to mass public actions for health reasons. But Skeena, can we lose any more time while the planet burns and drowns and melts? How can climate action go forward? I really appreciate your framing of the time and its relationship with what's needed now. And yes, that that this is an emergency with urgency. Every day things get so much worse. And I am imagining that actually we need to slow down, (laughs) slow down, because I I think the crisis, Alex, is the, the climate emergency lives between us. The climate crisis lives in our relationships. What is the climate crisis is something I've really been with many others, you know, asking. Because I think for any crisis, one has to say, well, where and why and how and who, right? Where where does this come from? How has it become our reality? In thinking about that, I think what's taken me and I, I think that there's a growing movement of people who are recognizing that this is about the crisis of relationship. This is the crisis of disconnection. This is the crisis of dehumanization. This is the crisis of the collapse of our interconnectedness, our interbeing, our, you know, those wonderful words that many wisdom traditions hold as sacred and with reverence, right? So that, that place of the essentiality of deep and adaptive relationship between each other that's really slowing that needs to be to be in relationship one has to cultivate the conditions that that aren't of urgency that they're they're of spaciousness they're of listening they're of loving that comes from a very different energy than than that idea that there's a fire there's an emergency and we have to run like hell to collect the buckets and put the fire out and it's it's not either or there is an emergency but it's, I think there's something about collecting ourselves together, taking a deep breath, 
looking into one another's eyes and, and saying, what do we do? What do we do before we do the running? Well, I like what you just said, that, that really the climate crisis is a crisis in relationships, because I think there's a tendency to think, well, this is a technical problem. Uh, we'll just switch all of our gas engines over to electric engines, and we'll continue to just run over the rest of nature. And, and the relationships we have are between ourselves, between people in other countries, people of all races, and and the Aboriginal people. So all of those relationships, that's the climate crisis. And until we address that, we're really not going to change enough to save things. Yes, and, and part of that is this removal from the relationships with all sentient beings and all, all you know, the elemental life force, the, the, the what we are with the more than human and the, the other than human. There's something to shift here around our anthropocentrism, you know, our insistence around human superiority and our dominance, our, our dominating nature that has been these thousands of years. So in that, there's some something to find around humility and, and a returning, a re, a re kind of a remembering, a remembering our relationship and, and, and how we depend on the many relationships that are in deep, you know, in our deep ecology. We are just part, right, of, of, the, of a great web of life, a great ecosystem. Um, and I think that that's connected to that we've been able to other and create whiteness supremacy and Western supremacy. Those two are related. Well, let's get down to Earth in a sense of asking, how big is Extinction Rebellion? Well, it fluctuates, Alex. You know, there have been in, in, in our peak, certainly we have had been in 81 countries with over 1,200 groups, 1,200 affinity groups, we call them, or affinity networks. It ebbs and flows as any movement does. You know, Extinction Rebellion lives in the hearts of many. This is how I feel it. You know, we, we have a no. In, for, for many of us, we, we're discovering a, a no we're discovering what the harm that we want to upstand, be upstanding to and say, no, we do not consent to this harm. And I, th I think Extinction Rebellion has caught fire, in, you know, in a way of the heart catching fire. And so you don't necessarily, what I'm saying is, I think many, many people have a relationship with Extinction Rebellion and aren't, aren't necessarily active in groups. Millions of people watched you go through attacks by Rupert Murdoch's attack dog, Piers Morgan, on ITV. And they just want people to be quiet while the wrecking goes on. Where do you find the patience? I mean, that's the thing that's really impressed me. I've watched quite a few of your, your videos and talks, and you have patience for people who are supposedly on the other side or who have, who have different views. Where, where do you find that? Thank you, Alex, for asking that question in a way that feels born of relationship. And I think that is the point that really it's more than patience. I, I actually have some compassion. If, you know, honestly, I feel that as a, as a trauma therapist and someone that's been inquiring into what our disconnection and disassociation is and, and how we can, how is it that we can stand in front of another human being and be in attack, how does one get to that point where there's not enough feeling for the other's well-being, the other's heart, the other's soul, the other, you know, the other's 
life force. How does one get to that? Well, you get to that because you are in pain. There is, you, there's some level of fight in you that is trying to escape the pain that you're in. Really, I have great compassion for who, who and how, how that manifests. And I certainly also have a place of, of stop, no, no more. But, but I essentially, I, I think we need to meet. There is no other, Alex. You know, there is, there is no other. We are, you know, if you do accept that we are interdependent life beings and there is some form of oneness between us, then, you know, it's seeing the, the other as your other self as some, you know, I'm so blessed to be in relationship with some Indigenous elders as part of a global community of Indigenous wilderness and eldership. You know, the greeting is, hello, my other self, you know, shalom, salam, hello, my other self. It's that part of me that wants to really see the and meet the heart of the other rather than the the pain of the other. But you say we live in, quote, a systematic anti-life project. Could you talk to us more about that? So there's, you know, I, I, would, I would like to say a story, and you can look at the origin of Homo sapiens and, and think about what's happened, what has happened to us that we could get to this. And when I say this, I'm talking about that anti-life project. I'm talking about systems that have been designed and have proliferated and govern our way of being in the world and our way of working and our way of interrelating and our way of organizing. And, and those systems have been designed in the image of a war and domination paradigm. And you could also talk about patriarchal culture here. You could talk about colonization as a culture. And where has that come from? And so, so here's, a, here's one story, Alex, that I think is a piece of the puzzle. How did we get here? How did we design such violent systems? And how are we in these cycles of harm that are, are anti-life? Well, I think something happened to the mothering principle. And I think when um, mass colonization took place, we moved away from matrifocal and matricultural ways of being. And by the way, I, when I say matri, I, I do not mean an inversion of patriarchy. That's not what I'm talking about. And it never was that. It never has been that. And it still isn't that. that many indigenous cultures are still still organized around a principle of matrifocality or matriculture. And when you remove a mother and child from the maternal home, the, the, the a matriarchal organizing, way of organizing and living together, um, when you make a mother alone, when you, when you make a child alone and when you remove them from the earth, which is what happened over, you know, some thousands of years, maybe eight to 6,000 years ago. And this is according to, to, to research by some women's studies across some universities, a, a few, not enough, a few universities across the world. What happens to our felt sense is, is trauma. What happens to the, the young baby, the baby, is that the baby is removed from, from attachment that secures a sense of safety that secures a sense of the needs being felt and met you know what a baby learns instead what we've learned generally in the western paradigm particularly is a felt sense of scarcity and a felt sense of separation and a felt sense of powerlessness psychologists call it hopelessness and helplessness and and you know attachment theory abounds as to you know what style of attachment 
are we suffering from mostly suffering where we're in we're in a we're in a mass suffering because we don't feel we don't feel a sense of abundance we we feel a sense of scarcity we don't feel a sense of togetherness and connection we will feel a, we we've got separate mass separation anxiety and, and we don't feel powerful we feel powerless and then we we've designed systems from those feelings that dominate our very being and a man generally have have designed systems in that and and so we've been able to design destructive systems systems that cause harm and and systems that separate us even further systems that don't don't respect the sanctity of life that don't respect the interrelational aspects of life the interdependence and that's where we are and that's what what i mean by a systematized anti-life project This is Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Get all our previous programs at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with our guest, Skeena Rathor from Extinction Rebellion. In 2019, you appeared with Kelly Tatum in the program Climate Change in the Multiverse, and when asked, you said, quote, My heart is grieving and celebrating. My heart is expecting something. End quote. So how was your heart now, two years and a pandemic later? What a precious question. How is my heart now, two years? Well, we've just celebrated our three-year anniversary of Extinction Rebellion. We celebrated, some of us celebrated in my home actually here um, in Stroud. And I think we've reached a crossroads. My heart is, is in a new grieving. My heart's in a letting go. I, I think... Even two years ago, Alex, I thought that with enough togetherness and enough felt sense of grief, the grief and the longing, enough vision, you know, imagining and, and longing towards that imagining, enough in enough deep with enough deep collaboration, and and, and just in, enough locally power, you know, really creating localized power. I thought we could. There was still space for mitigation, I think, or some like emergency stop button. <laughs> You know, I, I think I was in some kind of, I feel somewhat embarrassed, if I'm honest, that I, and, and not because as a mother of three girls, you know, you, you want, you, you'll do anything and you'll, you'll, you want, you want life for them. You know, you just, and, and I have nieces and nephews and all the many babies I've held because I've worked very much with young children and babies for a lot of my life in my, in my work. But I have, I am in a letting go. I am in a letting go of, I, I don't think we're going to be able to keep temperature rises under three degrees. I, I can't see scientifically how we would do, or you know, um, theoretically, scientifically, practically, all of those ways. I can't see how we would do it. And so I'm in new bouts of grief, and I'm, I'm deep in inquiry and, and deep in new relationships around something we're calling as a, as a kind of holding phrase of being the change work. Because in this in this moment now, who can we be as humanity, as, as humans, with the great beings that we are, with the great hearts that we have, how much can we expand to meet this moment? And we, we can still have a moment that where we, we flower into loving like crazy, what I call it loving like we've never loved before. And it doesn't have to be a violent ending for humanity. It doesn't have to be that. And... I'm very deeply committed to that type of mitigation now, that, that 
mitigating for, for the violence that you know is still within us that is still around us we are, that we are still part of that we are still being and interrupting it disrupting that disrupting that violence in all the, the dimensions that it operates in and and creating uh, in recovering our love body as my brother calls it and yeah recovering enough recovering our nervous systems and our heart capacities enough to uh, for our children right for for and, and children of all species a moment just to be able to have a moment that isn't isn't utterly horribly well violent and uh, that word again you know i have i still have fear i'm still scared of extreme violence taking hold of us but but i'm committed to interrupting that Yes, it's wild that some authorities and media keep wanting to paint violence on climate protesters who have been dedicated to peace for so long. And I think, obviously, it's a projection of the violence in society, the militarism, the police action, the now vigilante action in the United States with all the guns there, so that we are swimming upstream because leaks from inside big tech and media confirm they make lots of money by promoting division in society and, and people get angry at their keyboards and angry at their screens and their phones and, and meanwhile these billionaires get rich. But I like your vision because we could do so much good if we work together with good hearts. We we could take down this fear machine. Yes, we could. Yes, we could. So the thing is, you know, we are that fear too, you know. That's why we're on our screens and that's why we're behind screens and, and we, we're in cars and, and all the things that we that are um, keeping us from one another and keeping us from the earth. We need to work out our belonging, our belonging to each other again. We need each other. Our nervous systems need. It's a, it's a biological imperative, right? for my nervous system to be in relationship with another nervous system and, and also of, uh, with the Earth's nervous system. Really, the work is to leave those mechanisms of disconnection. Leave the table. Leave your table. Leave the desk, you know. Let's come back to one another. Let's come back to sharing a different table, food. Tables of food. Let's come back to looking at the sky and the stars together around the fire. Let's come back to telling one another stories, to singing and dancing and playing together. Let's come back to climbing trees and, and really looking and listening to all, to nature. Nature means all that is born. Let's listen and, and remember and relate again. And that's the vision I'm holding. I'm seeing, I think there's new language to find. I'm seeing something become local. And what I mean is by that is our radically localized places of belonging and community where there is communion um, with all that is alive. There we are repairing our, our soils and our water cycles where the air is clean and the skies are clear and we are sharing food that we've grown and we are decolonizing our education and we are there's a, you know, the whole new way of becoming, being in education, our systems, you know, our, our energy system, our food security and our water security, that's, we're, we're arranging that all locally. But we're doing it locally. We're doing it at, glo at a global level too. That's my vision, Alex, in brief, briefly. <laughs> it's a wonderful vision and we are short of them. And I find myself keep 
wanting to say, but look, the COP just failed, or or look, uh, it's more polluted in India and Pakistan than it's ever been, or or look, 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 look. So even as you come up with, I think, a workable, sane vision, there's something in my brain that says it can't work. And so I'm, I, I don't know, we have to overcome this, this sense of doom before we can build anything, I guess. Well, why can't it work, Alex? What's in the way? Well, it seems like we're in the way. Uh, we, we think that rich people in the way, but most of us aren't willing to give very much up either. We're going to take holidays in Spain and just enjoy life and until it all falls apart. Yes, so there's a body of work that I'm developing. You're quite right. It's only ourselves that's in the way. It's not, it's not we're really good at outsourcing and, and, you know, this blaming, shaming culture is part of this conditioning, right, that the war and domination paradigm creates in order to, to keep the, the Enlightenment and modernity, the Western project going, we have to other and, and divide and conquer. And, and there's a whole caste system, you know, of value of human beings and life, life forces. And so, so it's really easy. In that, in that paradigm, it's really easy for us to say, oh, let's go to COP and, and, and beg for more, or let's go to G7, which is what we've, you know, we've done, or let's, Let's do another, you know, doing ourselves outside Parliament and or another big, let's create another strategy for mass NVDA that might tip the prisons into overwhelm. And all the time that we spend doing that, and it's not that the no and that the, the disobedience isn't really important because it is, it's really important. But there's so much we could do at, at being the change ourselves. And that's what we've invented a body of work called collaboration. We've developed a body of work called Co-Liberation. And in that work, we're looking at what's in the way, we're naming what's in the way within us and between us, systemically and biospherically and also neurospherically in five dimensions. And we're, we're looking at four pathways of how we become the vision. How do we become a regenerative presence on earth? So we're identifying the how. And we're really excited Alex, we're really excited about bringing the work of co-liberation into the world. Any other uh, chatter to bring us from the the celebration of three years of Extinction Rebellion? I mean, uh, you're right there with a group of people who have worked this for a while. Some of my listeners are hearing about it perhaps even for the first time, although I think most of, of us have heard of Extinction Rebellion. But we need to get to the heart of it and, and to, to imagine the people who are, are sparking this. Uh, any ideas for us? Sparking, tell me what you mean by sparking this. What? Well, we we got the original ideas, I think some of them from Greenpeace. Of We'll do really inventive actions, we'll get some media attention, and hopefully get other people thinking about these things. Now you've talked about a, a new strategy that goes beyond that and goes in some different directions from that. Who else are you working with? Who? What else is being discussed at, at your level? Well, you know, the, the, one of the many blessings of these last three years are the number of people we've been able to meet who, I would say, occupy a place of visionary leadership and visionary cultures and regenerative cultures. What I'm, I think many of us are doing is wanting to bring that together as much as possible for the deep collaboration to occur between the vision, you know, visionary leadership, visionary elders, um, together with in the, the wisdom of um, indigenous c- 
communities across the world who know all about relationship and how to come into that place of union enough for life to be, you know, able to flourish. Ancient wisdom traditions also, you know, carry some of that gold that, that we need. I feel a golden shadow for us, Alex. I feel like if I look at the many beautiful um, and brilliant minds and hearts that I've met these last three years, really the work is just making making the connections and trusting that what we're bringing to each other, and if we can really honour one another's work and lean and in towards and support that which resonates, because it is it is about the flourishing of you know it resonates enough or we know enough that it, it can cause flourishing. That's what we're doing now, and I think that there are many aspects of being that work in terms of, of radically localizing our lives. Well, we're running out of time. Is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners? I, I think I would would just say we can adapt, but the transformative adaptation deep adaptation, great adaptations are possible. And, and it's much, it's, it could be much simpler and easier and more convenient than, than having to think about global policies and carbon capture schemes, much simpler and easier for all of us. And, and, and that lean into your local community, create, recreate those relationships, have those crisis talks, co-liberate together, co-liberate and adapt because you can because you can, and you are brilliant enough and bold enough and courageous enough and heartful enough to do it. From the UK, we have been speaking with Extinction Rebellion co-founder, local politician and thought leader, Skeena Rathor. Connect with the worldwide movement at www.rebellion.global and learn more in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Skeena, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Ecoshock. Thank you so much, Alex. Many blessings for your work. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Let's get a warning and a vision from Elon Musk. He is the world's richest man by stock value. Elon is the champion of the electric car and vying for largest car maker in the world with Tesla. His Tesla companies make more commercial-sized batteries than anyone else. Musk's SpaceX essentially replaced the failed rocket program of the entire United States government, delivering human satellites and supplies to space. In this quick clip posted November 14th by the nonprofit Inner Vision, Elon tells us artificial intelligence, AI, is an existential threat to civilization. The robots are coming, and they can do your job better 24-7. Then Musk tells us China is far ahead in renewables, no matter what you've been told. Even with gigafactories springing up at record time, nobody can make electric cars fast enough, Musk warns, so gas and diesel cars will be with us for more decades. That is a recipe for climate disaster. Then he ends with the grand vision of powering America with just the sun. The past has been bad, but not um, something which represented a, you know, a fundamental risk to the existence of civilization. AI is a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization in a way that car accidents, uh, airplane crashes, faulty drugs, 
or bad food were, were not. They were not. They, they were harmful to to uh, a set of individuals within society, of course, but they were not harmful to society as a whole. Um, AI is a fundamental existential risk for human civilization, and I don't think people fully appreciate that. Um, and um, I think we should be really concerned about AI, and I think we should. This is, AI is a rare case where I think we need to be proactive in regulation instead of reactive. Um, because I think by the time we are reactive in AI regulation, it's too late. So, so there will certainly be a lot of job disruption. Because what's going to happen is robots will be able to do everything better than us. I'm, inclu- I'm including, I mean, all of us, you know. I mean, there's like something like 12% of jobs are transport. Transport will be one of the first things to go fully autonomous. But when I say everything, like the robots will be able to do everything, bar, bar nothing. Yeah, probably in 10 years, more than a half of uh, new vehicle um, production is electric in the United States. And China's probably going to be ahead of that because China's been super pro-EV. Um, I don't think a lot of people know this, but like, I mean, China's environmental policies are way ahead of the U.S. Like their mandate for renewable energy far exceeds the U.S. I think this, sometimes people are under the impression that China is uh, either dragging their feet or, or somehow behind the U.S. in terms of um, sustainable energy promotion, but they're they're by far the most aggressive on Earth. It's crazy. I mean, like, in fact, the. A coalition of Chinese car manufacturers just wrote the Chinese government to beg for them to slow down the mandate because it's like too much. They they need to make eight percent electric vehicles. I think like next year or in two years or something. This like they can't physically do it. Um, so China is by far the most aggressive on um, electric vehicles and solar, but that's a common misperception that they're not. So. And in ten, in ten, yeah, ten years, man. I think, yeah, yeah. So ha- half of all production, I think, will be EV. I think almost all cars produced will be autonomous in ten years. Almost all. It will be rare to find one that is not in ten years. That's going to be a huge transformation. Now, the thing to bear in mind, though, is that new vehicle production is only about five percent the size of the vehicle fleet. You think about how long does a car or truck last, and they last 15 to 20 years, so before they're finally scrapped. So, new vehicle production is only roughly one, at most one fifteenth of the, the fleet size. So, even when new vehicle production, say, switches those switches over to electric or to autonomous, that still means the vast majority of the fleet on the roads is not. It'll take another, you know five to ten years before that becomes majority, the majority of the fleet becomes EV or uh, uh, autonomous. But if you were to say go out 20 years, overwhelmingly things are electric autonomous, overwhelmingly. Fully autonomous? Fully autonomous. So no one will have to touch the steering wheel if there is one? There will not be a steering wheel. <laughs> In 20 years, um, it will be like having a horse. People have horses, which is cool. Um, but so, so having a regular car will be like having a horse. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and there will be people that have that have you know non-autonomous cars like people have horses <laughs> it just would be unusual to use that as a mode of transport yes all right let's talk about um, the energy piece and rooftop solar and storage I mean, first of all it's a important to appreciate that the Earth is almost entirely solar-powered today um, in the sense that the sun is the only thing that keeps us from um, being at roughly the temperature of cosmic background radiation, which is three degrees above absolute zero. If it wasn't for a sun, we'd be a frozen dark uh, ice ball. The amount of, so the amount of energy that, hits the sun, that reaches us from the sun is tremendous. It's, it's, over, it's, the, it's 99% plus of all energy that, that Earth has. Then there's there's, there's, there's this energy we need to use to run civilization, which to us is big, but compared to the amount of energy that reaches us from the sun is tiny. So it, it, it's very easy, like it actually doesn't take much. If, if, you, if you wanted to power the entire United States with solar panels, um, it would take um, a, a fairly small corner of Nevada, Texas, Utah, anywhere. It's, it, you only need about 100 miles by 100 miles of solar panels part of the entire United States. And then the, the batteries you need to store that energy to make sure you have 24-7 uh, power is uh, one mile by one mile. One, one square mile. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it. That's, that's it. Mm-hmm. Real tiny. That was Elon Musk, recorded and posted November 14th by Intervision. Maybe we mine the earth into hell trying to accomplish that dream? Listen to my show, Is Green Energy a Dangerous Myth? Or check the blog posted September 1st, 2021 at ecoshock.org. If Elon Musk is right and gas diesel cars keep pushing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere way past 2030, after the fires, floods, droughts, and freak storms persuade enough people We may have to give up owning a car or an SUV or pickup truck. That is sacrilege, I know. It's hard to even think about. We could party with all the toys and let the kids suffer. But as you hear from Greta Thunberg, the kids are not all right with that. If humans want to survive, you and I need to consume a lot, a lot less. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening. Please tell others about Radio Ecoshock. Shock.